Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to this newest episode of California Dreaming. This is a third part of our series on the rise and fall of Theranos and its founder and former CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. I want to thank you for listening to and enjoying this podcast. It is an independent one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can help support this show. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any platform that you listen to the show on. That helps give the show more visibility and helps new listeners find us. I saw an article recently that said last year in 2021, not only were there not very many new groundbreaking newsworthy podcasts, the market is actually oversaturated and it's causing listenership to drop across the board. But to California Dreaming, it doesn't affect us too much because we are and always have been ad-free. So there's no revenue to be lost in regards to that. But also because I do have a very loyal listener base that don't seem to be going anywhere. So it doesn't worry me. But I would still like a couple of people here and there to be able to find us and your reviews help that. And if you would like to go above and beyond and have a couple of dollars each month to spare, you can support the show on Patreon. You'll gain access to dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses, and you'll be helping to keep the lights on, as well as the puppies' bellies full of treats. The show relies 100% on your donations, which are greatly appreciated. And if Patreon is not your thing and you'd still like to help, you can do so through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. And also, I would like you to stay tuned for a promo from the Murderific podcast that will play at the end of this episode. The sources for this episode include the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, as well as articles online that will be credited as needed in the show, as well as in the show notes, where you can find links to everything. All right, let's get back to this multi-part series of California Dreaming, the tale of a girl boss and the Silicon Valley of lies. To recap, in part two, we saw Theranos make the move on up from East Palo Alto to the other side of the freeway to the Palo Alto which ultimately led to the departure of one of Elizabeth's favorite subordinates, her longtime IT guy, Matthew Bissell. We discussed all of the yes people in Elizabeth's circle of indentured employees and how they helped simulate a successful demonstration of the Edison for Swiss pharma company Novataris. We saw the CFO of Theranos, Henry Mosley, terminated when he began questioning the veracity of what Theranos was saying not only about the abilities of the Edison blood testing system, but also the financial projections of the company, which didn't just seem over-exaggerated, but they were strikingly over-exaggerated. We saw one employee after another either resign or be fired, and this would remain a theme pretty much throughout the existence of Theranos. Then we saw the board of directors attempt to stage a hostile takeover which is not a term that I use very often, but I recently saw it on one of my many recent binges. This time it was Bar Rescue because seeing people yelled at makes me feel better when I'm feeling blue. 
But anyway, that's what I thought this sounded like, a hostile takeover. After realizing that Elizabeth was living in Wonderland, even though she may look like Alice, she tends to act more like the Red Queen. Am I right? Elizabeth, Red Queen, blood, seems legitimate. They could see Elizabeth living in a fantasy world, pretending, aka lying, that the Edison was working, making up inflated profit projections. The board was trying to replace her as CEO. As a matter of fact, they had reached the decision to oust her. But once again, she was able to use her superpowers to sidestep that and convince the board to allow her to stay in that position. The Red Queen, I should start calling her that, off with their heads, right? So the Red Queen saw the last of the apple transplants fall as well. And we finished off part two with the long saga of a friend of Elizabeth's parents, that doctor and inventor who likes revenge, even if it takes years to exact it, Richard Fwiz, and how he tried to get back at Elizabeth and her family for not consulting with him when she decided to launch her own biotech company by applying for a patent that he knew that Theranos was going to need sometime in the future. It was petty, and it was costly, and in the end, Elizabeth was able to sick one of the best attorneys in the country on him, and she won. We did skip ahead a few years to wrap up that drama with Richard Fwiz, so we're going to pick back up in the timeline from where we left off before I got into all of that drama. So now, we're going to get to know a couple of people that Elizabeth knew first in her personal life. And then they would come to work for her at Theranos. One of them was Chelsea Burkett. Chelsea and Elizabeth met at Stanford their freshman year and quickly became fast friends. They lived next door to each other in the dorm, and they had lots in common in terms of having fun and enjoying the college life, sororities, parties, things of that sort. But unlike Elizabeth, Chelsea graduated. But when Elizabeth told her that she was dropping out to chase her champagne dreams and caviar wishes, Chelsea was both surprised and impressed. Her friend seemed to have her head on straight and knew exactly what she wanted to do and was on her way to making it happen. The friends did keep in touch after Elizabeth left Stanford and founded Theranos while Chelsea finished up school and found herself a job at a local investment banking startup, which was also in the same area of Palo Alto. However, by the summer of 2009, Chelsea was unhappy at her job, and in a random conversation thread that she was having with Elizabeth, she began venting about her dissatisfaction with her employment. And that's when Elizabeth's heat-seeking radar found its next target. And she was like, hey, why don't you come be my next sucker? I mean, employee. The two set up a meeting and it wasn't a hard sell. Elizabeth was already Chelsea's really good friend. And she's very accomplished at hyping up Theranos. She always had this change the world angle that people were soon feeling like they were a part of. It was like something bigger than many of the other tech companies were about especially in the field of 
investment banking that Chelsea had found herself kind of stuck in. Elizabeth offered Chelsea a position in what she called client solutions. Chelsea would be responsible for arranging the validation reviews that Theranos was running in order to land contracts with pharmaceutical companies. Chelsea's official first day at Theranos came just a couple of days later. When Chelsea reported for her first day, she realized that there was another familiar face on Theranos' payroll that she knew from back in the Stanford days as well. Ramesh Sunny Belwani. We will call him Sunny. He had only been with Theranos for maybe a week when Chelsea started, and he was brought on with this ambiguous top administrative title of executive vice chairman. Chelsea didn't know exactly what that meant. She didn't know if Sunny was her direct supervisor or if it was Elizabeth. But what she did know was this, that Elizabeth was involved in a romantic relationship with Sunny, that she lived with him in a condo that he purchased in October of 2004, that he quickly worked to infuse himself into every nook, cranny, and corner of all things Theranos, that he wanted to make sure that everybody was aware of him, his role, and his presence, and Chelsea knew that she did not like him at all. Of Sunny, John Carreyrou wrote, Sunny was a force of nature, and not in a good way. Though only about 5 foot 5, and that's 1.65 meters tall, and portly, he made up for his diminutive stature with an aggressive, in-your-face management style. His thick eyebrows and almond-shaped eyes Set above a mouth that drooped at the edges and a square chin, he projected an air of menace. Dreamers, that's a nice way of saying that Sonny has resting bitch face. He was haughty and demeaning towards employees, barking orders, and dressing down people. So this was not the most sunny or flattering portrait of the guy. But... He was filthy rich, so there's that. Sonny did make an effort to be as nice as he could pretend to be to Chelsea because she was Elizabeth's good friend from back during the five minutes that she attended Stanford. But he really wasn't winning her over. The truth was Chelsea was thinking what probably lots of us might be thinking when we first got a glimpse of Sonny and learned of his role in Elizabeth's life. What the hell does she see in this guy? He's almost 20 years older than her, and as stated in Carrie Rue's book, he's, quote, lacking in the most basic grace and manners, unquote. While there are no specifics listed as to what is meant by that, my immediate thoughts were, he's always the first one to grab up the coffee and all the best donuts and pastries at all the corporate meetings, that he probably talks with his mouth full of food while crumbs tumble down his chin and end up tangled in his gold chain and chest hair sprouting out of his way too unbuttoned poofy dress shirt, followed by a series of loud belches. But that's just what I picture as somebody who's lacking grace in manners. It does kind of perplex me as to what Elizabeth actually saw in Sunny. I mean, everything that she does does have an agenda. So when I wonder why this beautiful, statuesque woman 
would be interested in a much older, pudgy little dude. We would generally think that it had to be for his money. But she grew her own wealth and success. Perhaps she admired him as a success in his own right within the Silicon Valley as a software engineer and a self-made millionaire. I briefly discussed Sonny in part one of the series and how he met Elizabeth and how he became wealthy. After working for the better part of 10 years as a software engineer for both Microsoft and Lotus, with a partner, he launched CommerceBid, an online buying and selling company. And then just five months before the dot-com bubble tanked, the company was sold to Commerce One for $232 million. And Sonny's cut was a cool $40 million. Though, if anybody asked, it wasn't good luck that he got out when he did. He would just say that he's that savvy of an entrepreneur. While Elizabeth did meet Sonny when she was 18, it isn't really known for sure when their romantic relationship started, but it is generally believed that it was sometime after she dropped out of Stanford, perhaps during the process of starting up Theranos. Sonny had been married once before, but by late 2004, when he purchased that condo, he listed his status as single on his paperwork. By the middle of the summer of 2005, Elizabeth was living there with him at that condo. From 1999, after he launched and sold CommerceBid, Sonny's time was spent mostly living his best life with his millions of dollars, and at the same time, quietly mentoring Elizabeth through the early days of Theranos. In early 2001, he began attending business school at Berkeley, and then he enrolled in some computer classes at Stanford. And as mentioned in part one, they met in China while they were both enrolled in that Mandarin Chinese program. Sunny officially became a part of Theranos' executive staff in the early fall of 2009. And this is where, for him, it kind of paid off to be canoodling with the boss. Because you see, Sonny had some shady, dodgy, tax evasion-y things going on when it came to the money that he earned when he sold his commerce bid company. In order to avoid paying an exorbitant amount of taxes when he earned that $40 million, he hired a firm that was willing to help him with some creative accounting. And what they did was they set up an investment that was essentially a tax shelter. And this officially listed the investment as a manufactured loss of $41 million, and it enabled Sonny to not be liable for any of the taxes due on his $40 million in earnings. He ended up getting dinged by the IRS a couple of years later and was made to pay back the millions of dollars that he would have owed, which was, by then, back taxes with all the penalties and fees but he also ended up filing a lawsuit against the accounting firm that cooked up this scheme for him, claiming ignorance, blaming the firm for leading him down this dodgy path. The suit was settled out of court. I would imagine this sort of blemish would come up for anyone applying for a job at a multi-million dollar Silicon Valley corporation and cause you to not get hired unless you're in good with the boss. Another thing about Sonny is that he was flashy to a point that it was tacky. When I read some of the details in Caribou's book, I was kind of embarrassed for him. He didn't drive only one overcompensation car, he drove two. 
a black Porsche and a black Lamborghini with corny vanity plates that most probably wouldn't get if you were sitting behind this guy at a red light, unless he ordered customized license plate frames that explained what his vanity plates meant. <laughs> and let me tell you how Carrie Rue described Sonny's fashion choices. The way Sonny dressed was also meant to telegraph affluence, though not necessarily taste. He wore white designer shirts with puffy sleeves, acid-washed jeans, and blue Gucci loafers. Okay, dreamers, I googled blue Gucci loafers, and I'm not impressed at all. In fact, I clicked out of Google pretty much offended by the whole experience. His shirt's three top buttons were always undone, causing his chest hair to spill out and revealing a thin gold chain around his neck. A pungent scent of cologne emanated from him at all times. Let's pause so we can all collectively throw up in our mouths a little bit right now. Combined with the flashy cars, the overall impression was of somebody heading out to a nightclub rather than the office. So Elizabeth saw value in Sunny's background as a software engineer, and he would be able to contribute in that aspect to Theranos, allegedly. He had told employees shortly after he started that he, quote, wrote more than a million lines of code. For everybody listening to this horse pucky, the statement elicited strong feelings of wanting to eye roll, but everyone managed to stifle the urge. What are lines of code? Well, according to PCMag.com, they are the instructions a programmer writes when creating a program. Lines of code are the source code of the program, and one line may generate one machine instruction or several depending on the programming language. Fortunately for us, Carrie Rue did the math. He wrote that while Sunny was an employee at Microsoft, teams of software engineers wrote the code for the Windows operating system at a rate of about 1,000 lines per year. Even if Sonny was writing 20 times that rate, it would take him 50 years to write a million lines of code. So here we see, at least on this level, where Sonny and Elizabeth connect in their ability to inflate the truth effortlessly in a room full of people. As long as the audience is a room full of people, who don't know any better, or who don't ask questions. If I was listening to Sonny say that he had written a million lines of code, the statement would have gone right over my head. If I was listening to Elizabeth say the Edison could perform 300 different types of diagnostic tests from a single drop of blood, I'd think to myself, hey, that's pretty cool. From the whole song and dance that she put on, for the layperson, like most of her investors were, it would look and sound pretty impressive. Sonny Balwani was pompous and pretentious, and he was also very condescending and treated everybody as though they were inferior to him. But there were times when certain people would show up at Theranos where Sonny would mysteriously vanish particularly when it came to people who were on the board of directors. I suspect that this wasn't 
as big of a mystery as it sounds, but this is only my opinion. But I think it's because Sunny's management style wasn't going to fly with those guys. The people on the board are responsible for representing the shareholders of the company. They were all investors in Theranos. They oversee Theranos operations. They create the governing documents. They set company policies. They hire and manage the executive employees. And this would include Sonny Belwani. They are essentially his boss. The board of directors have the overall responsibility for the company's activities, but they do not participate in the day-to-day operations and decision-making. So Sonny, on the regular, would go around like a chubby little chihuahua yipping and yapping orders and demands at everybody. But once a board member would show up, his boss, he was nowhere to be found. And he probably didn't want his style of management to be challenged by any of the members of the board, but he also didn't want to have to put on a fake show and pretend to be nice and supportive towards the employees in front of them either. The overall impression that I got of Sonny is that he's pretty much shoulder to shoulder with Elizabeth, except he was more like her enforcer. The employees knew he was the boss of the company as a whole, but some of them believed that Elizabeth was minimizing Sonny's role when it came to the board of directors. Employees also suspected that Elizabeth was not being forthcoming regarding the nature of her personal relationship with Sonny to the board. Engineer Tony Nugent knew that Sonny was her boyfriend before he joined Theranos. So when he was suddenly working there in September of 2009, Tony asked Elizabeth if they were still in a relationship and she told him straight up they were no longer involved romantically. This, of course, was a flat-out lie. So getting back to Chelsea, her first assignment with Client Solutions was to work with a biotech company then known as Centacore Incorporated. Today it's called Janssen Biotech. Remember, her job was to be responsible for arranging validation studies that Theranos was running in order to win contracts with these pharmaceutical companies. In the fall of 2009, Chelsea traveled to Belgium along with an MIT graduate with a PhD in bioengineering named Daniel Young. He had been hired on at Theranos about six months before this trip. This part is going to get a little technical, so I'm going to try to dumb it down as much as I possibly can because I know that I get lost when I'm listening to podcast hosts trying to explain stuff that I don't get. I totally zone out. So I'm going to try my best to hold both your attention and my attention here, if I'm being honest. Daniel Young's role was predictive modeling. What this is, is it's using statistics to predict future behavior by finding and analyzing patterns in large sets of past and current data in order to generate a model to help predict future outcomes. You see, when Elizabeth would give her sales pitch for the Edison to pharmaceutical companies, she would say that Theranos' blood testing system would be able to predict the future outcome of how the drugs that people were taking would affect them and how their systems would react to the drugs. Those test results would be sent into Theranos' proprietary programs, and the more information the computer gathered about a patient, it would then be able to better predict how those results would evolve over time as that patient was receiving treatment. 
And the more results that were inputted, then the better their system would be able to forecast future changes as well, and the better the treatment plans that their doctors would be able to develop. While this sounded impressive and leaps and bounds ahead of what any other blood testing system was capable of, the blood test results had to be reliable every single time in order for the Theranosis program to develop any meaningful predictions about a patient's response to drugs. I mean, this is common sense. And it wasn't long after Chelsea got to Belgium and was preparing to meet with Centacor executives that she began feeling that Theranos' system didn't work. What Centacor was interested in specifically was to be able to determine how asthma patients were reacting to asthma medications by gauging certain biomarkers in a patient's blood. Of course, Elizabeth pitched it as if the Edison was capable of that very specific kind of testing and would be able to provide reliable results every time. But Chelsea could see that the machine was full of bugs, and it more often than not experienced numerous failures with the mechanics of the thing, The cartridge wouldn't go into the machine easily, and then if it did, something inside the Edison was always on the fritz. And then, if by some stroke of luck, or an act of God that they managed to get through the actual testing part, it was difficult for the thing to spit out any results. Sunny attributed the output failures to a poor connection to the Theranos wireless servers, which may have been the case some of the time. The whole thing had to be transmitted back and forth between wherever they were in the world. In this instance, they were in Belgium. And it would have to go all the way to California and then all the way back to Belgium. And the results that would be sent had to be received to a cell phone. And if they were getting bad service, it would fail. This was 2009 and Wi-Fi was already a common thing. But okay, I get it. These things happen. It's glitchy, whatever. But Theranos' problems went beyond moving around the room and asking, can you hear me now? And their problems go back to Elizabeth's insistence on a single nanotainer droplet of blood. I'll share with you how Kerry Rue explained it in his book. He wrote, Nearly all blood tests require a certain amount of dilution to lower the concentration of substances in the blood that can wreak havoc on the test. In the case of chemiluminescent immunoassays, which is a class of testing that the Edison performs, diluting the blood was necessary to filter out its light-absorbing pigments that could interfere with the emission of the light signal. The amount of dilution that the Theranos system required was greater than usual because of the small size of the blood samples that Elizabeth was insisting upon. For the reader to have enough liquid to work with, the volume of the samples had to be increased significantly. The only way to do that was to dilute the blood more. That, in turn, made the light signal weaker and harder to measure precisely. Put simply, some dilution was good, but too much dilution was bad. My takeaway from all of that is that blood is pretty thick and very dark, and in order to run tests using light, 
it had to be diluted in order for the thickness and the pigment of the blood to be thinner. But in order for Theranos to run its test with these tiny itty bitty little blood samples, they had to dilute it more than would actually work for the testing. They wouldn't be able to get precise results because the sample was so diluted. It was useless. So there was one interesting thing that I did not know and I was kind of surprised to learn when I read it was that the Edison needed to be situated within a certain environmental temperature in order to work properly. And I'm not talking about a range of temperatures like when we did our series on, on Patreon about the, the fire and wine series, when we talked about wine cellars and how wine has to be kept in a certain temperature range. I'm not talking about a range. I'm talking about a very specific ambient temperature of exactly 93.2 degrees Fahrenheit or 34 degrees Celsius. And that's a pretty warm temperature for this machine to be working properly in, right? So engineers installed a pair of small heaters inside the Edison in order to keep the temperature at that level during testing. But when they got to colder climates or inside certain hospitals that were too cold, these heaters were not powerful enough to maintain that temperature for the Edison to function properly. But Sonny opted to blame a poor wireless connection. He had absolutely no desire to listen when Theranos engineers and scientists attempted to explain to him what the problem was when it came to the ambient temperature. He didn't know, he didn't understand, he didn't even want to try. He had no background in any of this. Neither did Chelsea, but she attempted to understand why their demonstrations were failing, and she had developed a pretty good working relationship with the lead chemist, Gary Frenzel, so in talking to him, she was able to figure out that the problems were way more complicated than a poor connection. There was something important that Elizabeth did not share with Chelsea that might have been useful for her to know. That two years earlier, back in 2007, Elizabeth had reached an agreement with Pfizer to participate in a pilot program to use the Theranos blood testing system in Nashville. I talked about that back in part one. By the time Chelsea had come on board and made her first trip to Belgium, Pfizer had already ended their relationship with Theranos because of the disappointing results of the study that they had conducted with the Edison. The thing was unable to produce reliable results, and it failed to provide them with any useful data that they were interested in using the blood testing system for, and Elizabeth tried sending a comprehensive report to Pfizer explaining all the problems away, but all the report did was really verify that Pfizer was doing the right thing by cutting off ties with Theranos. Elizabeth had admitted to the inconsistencies, as well as the very same issues that Chelsea and Daniel had had in Belgium, mechanical fails, wireless connectivity issues, etc. But according to Carreau, in her report to Pfizer, Elizabeth blamed dense foliage, metal roofs, and a poor signal quality due to their remote location. Um, okay, so it's those damn trees and bushes fault, right? As ridiculous of an excuse as that may be, it actually sounds exactly like something that would come from the mouth of a millennial college dropout. <sighs> Dense foliage, for crying out loud. And speaking of Pfizer, 
It did come out at trial in September of 2021, according to the Mercury News, that back in 2010, after Pfizer had pulled out of working with Theranos, that Theranos was utilizing Pfizer's logo and making the claim that the pharmaceutical company had validated their blood testing systems. Former Pfizer scientist Shane Weber testified at trial that he personally dismissed the technology back in 2008 and that he was unaware that anybody had authorized the use of their logo by Theranos. His final report included the fact that he had even spoken directly to Elizabeth when he made his decision in a conference call where he described her as giving him oblique, deflective, or evasive, non-informative answers to technical questions. In addition to that, Shane Weber's report read, Theranos unconvincingly argues the case for having accomplished tasks of interest to Pfizer and that the nine conclusions in their summary document are not believable based on the information provided. So yeah, that's pretty damning. Weber made the recommendation that Pfizer no longer invest any more money or resources into Theranos unless Pfizer's needs changed or Theranos's technology improved. He further testified that when he explained his findings to Elizabeth, she asked for other people at Pfizer that she could speak to. He deflected this, explaining that he did not want other points of the company being contacted or distracted from their clinical trial duties. I think that that's a polite way of saying Elizabeth wanted to go around him so she could try to smooth talk other people who are less impervious to her charms than he was. The court was shown a report Elizabeth had emailed to Walgreens in 2010 that was titled Pfizer Theranos System Validation Final Report and it had both Theranos's and Pfizer's logos on the title page. The report stated that Theranos's systems had superior performance and excellent accuracy. Shane Weber told the court his findings were exactly the opposite of that and that Pfizer never endorsed Theranos or its system. So not only is Theranos perpetuating more lies here, they are also potentially damaging the reputation of other companies by claiming that their faulty technology had been validated by these gigantic, reputable pharmaceutical companies. Chelsea had no idea that Pfizer had ended their partnership for the exact same reasons that she was embarrassing herself in Belgium to yet another pharmaceutical company. By the time Chelsea got back from her three-week business trip to Belgium, Elizabeth and Sunny had moved on to a different endeavor, someplace new in the world. Mexico. The World Health Organization declared the H1N1 influenza virus a pandemic in 2009, and it's commonly referred to as the swine flu. The virus was first reported in the United States with two children that were infected in March of 2009, but it had been infecting people as early as January of 2009 in Mexico, with patient zero being in Veracruz. Within days of Mexico City reporting that they had an outbreak on March 18th of 2009, they went into a lockdown. 
Ultimately, the pandemic lasted from January of 2009 through August of 2010. While there were less than 500,000 laboratory-confirmed cases of this strain of flu, it is suspected that anywhere between 700 million and 1.4 billion were infected. There were 18,449 confirmed deaths reported to the World Health Organization, with estimated deaths being around 284,000. Elizabeth saw the swine flu as a golden opportunity to try and capitalize, to show off the Edison during times of a worldwide pandemic. Get them while everyone is desperate, weak, and vulnerable, and in a panic, I guess was her train of thought. The person who came up with the idea was the CSO, an executive position I was today years old when I learned of. This is Chief Scientific Officer. He's a gentleman by the name of Seth Michelson. He used to work for NASA, his expertise being in the field of biomathematics, which is using math to understand biological phenomena. Seth explained to Elizabeth that mathematical models could be adapted in order to forecast where the influenza would spread next. They would have to have Theranos blood testing systems in place in order to be able to test those who were most recently infected and then take those blood test results and input that data into the math model. In order to make that happen, they needed to get the Edisons up and running in Mexico. Elizabeth actually thought that she would be able to ride into Mexico with truckloads of Edisons and drop them off all over at the country's towns and villages at the epicenter of the flu outbreak. So Elizabeth decided that since Chelsea spoke Spanish, she would send her down to Mexico with Sonny so that they could embarrass themselves some more. I'm just kidding, but no, they probably would, to peddle the Edisons. Now, apparently, it's no easy task getting experimental contraptions authorized for use in foreign countries, but Elizabeth seemed to have a connection for every scenario under the sun, and she just so happened to have gotten chummy-chummy with a student at Stanford from a prominent family in Mexico who were pretty high-ranking in the department that oversees Mexico's health care. They ultimately gave Theranos the green light to ship 24 Edisons to a Mexico City hospital. The neighborhood where this hospital was located had such a notoriously high crime rate that it was strongly suggested that Sonny and Chelsea be driven to and from the hospital so that they could be behind their security gates in the safety of a car. For several weeks, Chelsea was working inside a tiny room in the hospital where the Edisons were being stored. There were refrigerators that had blood that had been drawn from hospital patients. Chelsea was to heat this blood up to a temperature that was suitable for testing. She was to place the blood samples inside the cartridges, insert it into the Edison, and see if the blood samples tested positive for the swine flu. Now, dreamers, I don't think that I have to tell you how this can turn into a medical calamity. As usual, nothing went right. The Edison, more frequently than not, issued error messages on its screen, 
In addition to that, results that were being transmitted to Mexico from California were coming back negative when in fact the blood was positive for the flu. Then there were times that the Edison just did nothing. It just sat there like a heap of junk and did nothing. Sonny, his dumbass, continued to blame poor connectivity for the machine, flubbing up all the testing and the results and whatnot. At this point, Chelsea was fed up and she was like, how is this happening? What am I doing here? Is this even a thing? We can imagine the embarrassment she was having to face. And Elizabeth seemed perfectly content not having to be on the front lines of this humiliation of having to see these Edisons failing over and over and over again. She would sit back in her office and just come up with all of these fast-talking excuses to try and keep the deals from sinking. It's how she won over Walgreens. It was mostly based on Walgreens' fear of losing out Theranos' groundbreaking technology, alleged groundbreaking technology, to CVS, their biggest and closest competitors. And we will get into Walgreens before this episode is over. So, dreamers, here we are in 2022, going into year three of the COVID-19 pandemic. How do we test for the virus? We all know this. We've all had these things shoved up our nose. Cotton swabs. There's no blood draw involved. And there was no blood draw necessary for the swine flu testing either. It was then, as it is now, nasal swabs. Testing for it using blood draws was wasteful, costly, and totally unnecessary. Theranos scientist Gary Frenzel told Chelsea this, and she was like, are you serious? So we didn't need to do any of this. She'd been sitting in a tiny room in a hospital in Mexico, warming up blood, running it through useless machines in order to see if these people were infected with the swine flu when all they needed to do was shove a Q-tip up their noses. When she talked to Elizabeth about this, she did what she always did and blew her off, telling Chelsea that everybody's a complainer. Back at Theranos headquarters, Elizabeth was spreading the word that the deal was in the works to send 400 Edisons to Mexico. At the time, the company was running out of money and the deal was going to bring about a much needed infusion of cash that Theranos desperately needed at the time. By 2010, they had already spent a total of $47 million that had been raised in three rounds of investor funding. 32 million of which had come about as a direct result of fired chief financial officer Henry Mosley's involvement. Remember, Mosley had been fired back in 2006 after only being with the company for eight months because he called out some of the issues that the company was having with its technology and its inflated revenue projections, but he did so in front of the board of directors. But after it was found out that Mosley was viewing explicit materials on his work laptop, that became the official reason that he was terminated. So all the money that he was instrumental in raising, too, was gone. Theranos' lifeline was by way of a loan that Sonny Belwani had signed for himself. 
In the meantime, the swine flu pandemic was spreading quickly across Asia, and Thailand had been hit particularly hard. So Sunny had gone to Thailand to work on getting Edison set up there too to conduct blood testing for the virus. As stated earlier, experimental devices needed to be authorized to be used in foreign countries. And in order to get into Mexico, Elizabeth hit up an old Stanford friend from a prominent Mexican family. Well, it wasn't clear as to whether or not Theranos received authorization to bring Edison's into Thailand. And this ended up spawning some rumors that Sonny had some dubious connections that he was slipping money to in order to get his hands on some blood samples from individuals known to have the swine flu. Chelsea did not travel with them to Thailand, but one of her client solution associates unexpectedly resigned after returning from that trip. So Chelsea, along with several others, began to feel that their suspicions about Sonny were true. And if Sonny was, in fact, paying bribes overseas for infected blood samples, this was a felony criminal act in violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which meant they could all go to prison. And all of this was happening only three months into Chelsea's time at Theranos. Of all the things that Chelsea found to be troubling at the company in the short time that she had been working there, the one thing at the top of her list which worried her more than anything was Sonny Belwani. He utilized a style of management meant to cause people to be afraid and intimidated by him. Now, it wasn't uncommon for people to get fired left and right from Theranos even before Sonny got there. Some have said that the turnover was unlike anything they'd ever seen before or since, especially when it came to the executive staff. But once Sonny began working there in the fall of 2009, he was the new enforcer, and he was the one in charge of firings. And it came with a new term for what I've been calling banished to the pit of former employees. They started calling it being disappeared. When somebody was suddenly gone, they would say, Sonny disappeared, so-and-so. Earlier, I mentioned Seth Michelson. He was the one who brought it up to Elizabeth the possibility of using mathematical models to predict the spread of the swine flu, which inspired her to want to go to Mexico in the first place. He was also one who had a particularly contentious relationship with Sonny, especially because he was one of the very few who refused to take any shit from him. Seth was the head of the team of mathematicians. So for Christmas that year in 2010, he got everybody on his team some personalized polo shirts for his department that had the Theranos logo printed on it as well as the name of their department within Theranos. He had worked in management previously, and it was one of a number of things that he liked to do in order to foster teamwork and cohesiveness amongst his department and his subordinates. These polo shirts infuriated Sonny. He insisted that this was something that Seth should have run past him first for approval, and that the fact that he did it made other department heads look as if they didn't care about their teams. Seth was a PhD in math, 
and he had worked for NASA, and he had been in management in charge of dozens of employees with budgets in the tens of millions of dollars. He wasn't going to let this little chihuahua come around barking at him about how to be a manager. The confrontation between them escalated into a very loud verbal argument. And afterwards, after this argument, Seth felt that he was being targeted, attacked, and harassed incessantly by Sonny. And this in turn caused Seth to start looking for other work, which he did find for a genetic research company focused on cancer detection called Genomic Health. When Seth went to submit his letter of resignation to Elizabeth, giving his two weeks notice, Sonny snatched the letter, looked at it, and then threw it back at Seth, shouting that he was refusing to accept his letter of resignation. Seth loudly schooled Sonny in American history and informed him that President Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery 150 years earlier. So yeah, Sonny immediately threw Seth out. He was able to come back several weeks later with the help of a Theranos attorney and a security guard in order to retrieve his belongings. Next up is Sonny Balwani versus Tony Nugent. Tony Nugent, if you remember, is the engineer who was credited with creating the first version of what was to be called the Edison. It had the glue robot inside and everything, if you remember that from part one. Tony had his big blow up with Sonny next, and it was over the amount of pressure that Sonny was insisting that Tony place on one of his younger engineers working in his department, which ultimately led to this guy experiencing some kind of nervous breakdown. Tony spoke to Sonny about the kinds of pressure that was being placed on his engineers. Things quickly escalated into a loud verbal altercation between Sonny and Tony to a point where Sonny appeared as though he was going to explode from the fury that he was experiencing. He screamed that he was working at Theranos for free and that everybody there should be thanking him for being so generous with his time and that he had enough money to take care of his entire family for the next seven generations and he did not need to be there. Sonny was apparently nose-to-nose with Tony when he yelled this. Tony yelled back that he has no money, but he also did not need to be there at Theranos either. Elizabeth ended up intervening and managed to shut down the fight. While standard operating procedures would see Tony Nugent be the next employee to be disappeared, he wasn't. Somehow, he managed to survive to live another day at Theranos. Meanwhile, Chelsea had grown to really despise Sonny. She just flat out hated him, to a point where she actually went to Elizabeth to share her grievances. But Elizabeth was completely unaffected by what Chelsea was saying. It was clear that Elizabeth and Sonny were solidly in each other's corner. Anytime Elizabeth walked out of her office, Sonny immediately came out of his office and escorted her everywhere that she went in the building. There was a glass conference room in between their offices so they could see each other from across this room. Even if she was going to the restroom, he'd go all the way there with her and all the way back. Did he actually go inside the restroom with her? I don't know. 
The employees thought that he was, even if it was in a joking sort of way, as if he was going in there and wiping her ass for her or something. But whatever the case, it was just weird. Anyway, after six months, Chelsea was unhappy about working at Theranos, more unhappy than she had been at the company that she left to go there. She had had so much hope and enthusiasm when she first spoke to Elizabeth about joining Theranos, and it only took six months for all of that to evaporate. She wanted to quit. She just couldn't stand being around Sunny. The swine flu appeared to be getting under control, so the projects in Mexico and Thailand were about to be dead before they even got started. As Carrie Rue so eloquently put it in his book, the company was lurching from one ill-conceived initiative to another like a child with attention deficit disorder. And Chelsea was attempting to maintain a long-distance relationship with her boyfriend who lived in Southern California, and she was getting tired of flying back and forth every weekend to spend time with him, which is a little bit of first-world problems, but just saying. As Chelsea contemplated what her next move was going to be, Elizabeth and Sonny did something that finally pushed her over the edge. A while ago, I mentioned that Stanford student who had been a friend of Elizabeth's, whom she tapped as a connection to get the Edison approved for use in Mexico through his family connections. Well, his father had been told that it was possible that he had cancer, and when Elizabeth and Sonny caught wind of this, they talked him into letting them run tests on his blood to see if they could identify the markers that would indicate whether or not he actually had cancer. When word got around that Elizabeth and Sonny were running tests to try and diagnose whether or not an actual human being had cancer, everybody was stunned. Board member Gary Frenzel even stated that Theranos was playing doctor. Chelsea was beside herself when she heard. It was one thing for them to be running research tests and validations with their projects in Mexico and Thailand. There was not going to be any direct impact on how those people who may or may not have had the swine flu were going to be treated. But this, this was next level scandalous. Sonny and Elizabeth had convinced this guy to allow them to run tests on him and to provide him with results that he would then quite possibly use to decide what decisions that he was going to be making about his possible cancer treatment, knowing damn well that the Edison doesn't work for shit. Then Elizabeth and Sonny began printing and passing around blood testing request forms that are usually only used by doctors when ordering laboratory tests to be run on a patient's blood, and they were getting ready for consumer testing. That's what they were telling everybody. They were getting prepared for consumer testing. That was the last straw for Chelsea. She let Elizabeth know that she and her boyfriend discussed things and that she was going to move to Los Angeles, which she was, that was true, but she did not share the issues that she had had with Theranos. Chelsea said that while she would stay on until they found somebody to replace her, she was told that she could just go ahead and leave immediately, and she was not to speak to any of the employees who worked for her, which she was kind of bummed out about because she wanted to say goodbye to them. 
but Elizabeth and Sonny refused to allow her to do so because they wanted to make sure that they controlled what Chelsea's team were told about her departure. Chelsea was also feeling some of the same things that we've been saying throughout these episodes. Elizabeth was not in touch with reality. And what's more, the only person that she was allowing to be close to her was Sonny, this barky, ankle-biting little chihuahua that was a horrible influence on her. Chelsea was glad to be done with Theranos. The Great Recession of 2009 had an interesting side effect, and that was low interest rates. What this did was it caused people who usually invested in things like stocks and bonds to look for something more lucrative to put their money into. And one of the places that was hardly affected by the recession was the Silicon Valley. Mark Zuckerberg's company, Facebook, its value had skyrocketed in 2010. The iPhone versus the Android war was raging and popular mobile apps and games were all the rage. Uber was launched in 2010. So there was money to be made, and people had money to invest. East Coast money that usually got invested in the stock market was making its way to California, and they were following in the footsteps of older executives from already established businesses that were looking toward the Silicon Valley for opportunity in an economy that was beaten down by the recession. And one of those people who was interested in looking for investments outside of stocks and bonds was a 65-year-old Walgreens executive named Dr. J. Rosen, often referred to as Dr. J. He was part of what is known as the company's innovation team meaning that he was responsible for seeking out ways to reinvigorate Walgreens, which had been around for more than a century by 2010. It all started with a simple email that had been sent to Walgreens from Theranos regarding their blood testing systems, that they were creating a compact device capable of conducting any blood test from a finger prick sized droplet of blood that this testing took place in real time, and that it cost as much as 50% less than traditional blood testings. Within a couple of months, Elizabeth and Sunny were meeting with Walgreens executives at their corporate headquarters located in Deerfield, Illinois. Dr. J, who was based in Philadelphia, flew in for the presentation, and right away, He saw the value in the technology that Theranos had developed or was allegedly developing. He saw the Edison as the exact thing that would set Walgreens apart from its closest competitor, which was and is CVS. Dr. J not only saw the business potential, but he was also a man very conscientious about his own personal health and well-being. And Elizabeth's rigmarole about Theranos changing the way blood testing was conducted, making testing more accessible to every home in America, eliminating the pain associated with venous draws, never having to say goodbye to loved ones too soon, yada, yada, yada. It all really hit Dr. J in the feels. So he was sold, hook, line, and sinker. 
He was more excited than Elizabeth ever was or would be about the Edison because, well, he thought the thing actually worked. Elizabeth was able to feign excitement because she was still hoping for a miracle while she faked it till she made it. Dr. J genuinely felt as though he stumbled on a device that would change the biotech industry as we knew it. And it was all because Elizabeth told him the technology could do things like be able to detect breast cancer before a mammogram could. This guy was just over the moon for this device, just in love with it and Elizabeth. On August 24, 2010, laboratory consultant Kevin Hunter arrived at Theranos with a group of Walgreens executives, including Dr. J, who was super excited to see this deal go through. This was for a meeting scheduled to take place over the course of two days. It was Kevin's job to assess the possible partnership with Theranos that Walgreens was trying to work out. When he got to Theranos' headquarters, the thing that caught his attention first was Sonny's black Lamborghini. He kind of got the feeling that it was strategically placed in a conspicuous spot in order to impress everybody from Walgreens. The fact that Kevin Hunter even thought that leads me to believe right away that he is not going to be swayed by fast talk, blinkless blue eyes, or any other superficial fluff. They all gathered in that glass conference room that's situated between Elizabeth's and Sonny's offices. By the time this meeting was taking place, an agreement had already been reached for Theranos to run a pilot program that involved having anywhere between 30 and 90 Edisons inside Walgreens within a year. Customers would be able to go to Walgreens and get finger prick blood tests done with the results of those blood tests coming back to them in under 60 minutes. An initial contract had already been agreed upon and signed where Walgreens was to pre-order approximately $50 million in testing cartridges, in addition to loaning Theranos another $25 million. If the pilot program was a success, the plan was to eventually have Edison's in Walgreens across the country. The agreement between Theranos and Walgreens happened faster than deals usually happen in situations like this. It was because Dr. J was so enthusiastic about the program that he wanted it done ASAP, so he arranged to meet directly with the CFO of Walgreens in order to get him on board immediately. About 30 minutes after the meeting began, kind of an odd thing happened. And it was something else that consultant Kevin Hunter found a little bit unsettling. He needed to use the restroom. And when he brought it up, he noticed a visible change in Sonny's demeanor. Sonny then went on to explain that it's company policy to protect the integrity of their security and property, that anybody who stepped outside the conference room would have to be accompanied by either himself or Elizabeth. So they walked to the restroom together. Sonny waited in the hallway, and then they walked back to the meeting together. It was the kind of paranoia that seemed a bit excessive. Kevin had not seen anything like it with any other company prior to this. However, as Kevin made his way back from the restroom to the conference room, he kind of glanced around a little bit to see if he spotted any indication of where the laboratory might be. 
but he didn't see anything of the sort. He wanted to see the lab. After all, that's what he was there for. He was a laboratory consultant. Sonny and Elizabeth explained that the lab was on a different level of the building, at which point Kevin told them that he would be interested in seeing it. They'd be there for two days, so he was kind of expecting to. Elizabeth told him that they would visit the lab if time allowed. Walgreens had been told that Theranos had a fully staffed and equipped laboratory, and it also included a list of nearly 200 tests that they claimed the Edison was capable of running. And speaking of, as many as 100 of those tests that Theranos claimed that the Edison could perform could not be performed using the testing technique that the Edison was built to conduct. You heard that right. 100 of those tests required testing that was beyond the abilities of the Edison. And as far as the lab was concerned, the truth was that the laboratory was not a full-blown laboratory, but rather it was one purely for research and development where the chemical engineers were still in the research stages of putting this Edison together. We know that that thing isn't even close to being ready to be out there in the public wreaking havoc, but, you know, that's a quote-unquote trade secret, right? We know damn well that that is what Elizabeth and Sonny are working so hard to try and hide from everybody. About six or seven hours into this meeting, Elizabeth invited everyone to dinner at a nearby restaurant. As they were getting ready to leave the conference room, Kevin Hunter requested to see the laboratory for a second time. Elizabeth then discreetly signaled to Dr. J that she wanted to speak to him privately. When she was finished, Dr. J came and told Kevin that they would not be visiting the lab. Elizabeth did not want to show it to them. To divert everybody from the topic of the lab, Sonny invited everybody into his office. He showed them a place where he slept. There were pillows and a sleeping bag. He had some clean clothes hanging up, and in his bathroom, he had a shower. This, he bragged, was how dedicated he was to working at Theranos, that he was there practically day and night, around the clock. Things continued to get weird as they got to the restaurant. And I will share with you what Carrie wrote of the experience in his book. As they headed out to eat, Sonny and Elizabeth made them leave at staggered intervals. They did not want anyone to arrive at the restaurant at the same time on the grounds that it risked attracting notice. They also instructed Kevin Hunter and his colleagues to not use names. When Kevin got to the restaurant, a little sushi place on El Camino Real called Fuki Sushi, the hostess took him to a private room in the back with sliding doors where Elizabeth was waiting. The cloak and dagger theatrics struck Kevin as silly. It was four in the afternoon and the restaurant was empty. There was no one to conceal their presence from. What's more, if there was anything likely to draw attention, it was Sonny's Lamborghini in the parking lot. All of this stuff was causing Kevin to become skeptical and apprehensive about Theranos. He could tell that Elizabeth's deep voice was most likely a put-on. He could see that she was attempting to not only dress like Steve Jobs, 
but the way she drank green veggie shakes all day was reminiscent of Steve's strict fruit and vegetable diet. However, when questions were asked about the things that differentiated one blood testing type to another, Elizabeth clearly had no understanding of the processes at all, and he found that to be utterly baffling. And there were two things that he wanted to see which Theranos refused to show him, the laboratory and a live run on a test for vitamin D. He intended to have his blood and Dr. J's blood tested on the Edison and to get a copy of Theranos' results. Then he was going to take it to the medical center located on the Stanford campus and have their blood tested there to see if the results matched up. He even had an appointment at Stanford, and they were there waiting on them to run the comparison tests, and he had made the request two weeks before the scheduled meeting with Theranos, but Elizabeth told him that that just wasn't enough time for her to make those arrangements. And on top of all of this, Hunter did not like Sonny at all. I mean, seriously, nobody likes Sonny. I don't even think Elizabeth liked the guy. He came off as an egotistical, contemptuous snob. Anyway, when the Walgreens executive suggested that they intended to bring in their own IT staff when getting ready to launch the Edisons in their stores, Sonny just blew off the idea and said something to the effect that when it comes to both IT and attorneys, the standard is to avoid them as much as possible. To Kevin, this whole deal with Theranos sounded like big trouble. Dr. J could not be convinced, though. It was clear that he was quite enamored with both Elizabeth and the whole idea of being so closely connected to the Silicon Valley. It was as if he was starstruck. The following day, Walgreens Chief Financial Officer Wade Micklin had arrived to get in on day two of the meeting. He was the one who directly worked out the deal for the pilot program with Elizabeth, and he too was an Elizabeth super fan. He was also the one that Elizabeth had gifted that American flag to which she claimed had flown over an Afghanistan battlefield, complete with a personalized message from Elizabeth to Walgreens. Now, I can't recall if I listened to some podcasts or not, and if this was found to be untrue, but I searched online and in Elizabeth's deposition transcripts and in court testimony if she had ever admitted that it was not true about this flag, but I couldn't find anything, so I don't know. I tend to doubt that that flag ever flew over a battlefield, but I'm sure that doesn't surprise you that I think that, and I'm fairly certain that many of you, if not all of you, doubt it as well. Kevin Hunter felt that the whole incident was just bizarre, and he wasn't even sure what the hell he was doing there. They brought him on as a consultant to survey Theranos and its device, but he was not even given access to the lab, nor was he allowed to test the thing for himself. Yet everybody else was all cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over the stupid flag. Dr. J and Wade thought this meeting was such a vibe, and Kevin could only sit by and shake his head and wonder what the hell everybody at Walgreens was thinking. The following month in September of 2010, Walgreens and Sonny and Elizabeth had another meeting. This time it was at their headquarters back in Illinois. And to me, 
it's so cringe that I'm just going to tell you what Carrie Rue wrote about this meeting in his book. He said, The mood was festive. Red balloons with the Walgreens logo floated above a table laden with hors d'oeuvres. Wade Micklin and Dr. J were unveiling Project Beta, the code name for the Theranos pilot, to senior Walgreen executives. Standing in front of a slide titled Disrupting the Lab Industry projected on a big screen, one of the Walgreens executives was singing along to Imagine. To celebrate the alliance, the innovation team had come up with the idea of adapting the lyrics to the John Lennon song and using it as the partnership's anthem. When the awkward karaoke act was over, Elizabeth and Sonny encouraged the Walgreens executives to get their blood tested. They had brought along several black and white machines to the meeting. The Walgreens executives lined up to get their fingers pricked behind Kermit Crawford, the president of the pharmacy business at Walgreens, and Colin Watts, the head of the innovation team. Kevin Hunter managed to dodge the cringe fest. However, by then, he was a full-time Walgreens consultant. He got word that some of the executives did have their blood tested by the Edison, and so this was his chance to see if the thing actually lived up to all the hype. He made a mental note of it to touch base with Elizabeth regarding the test results the next time that he got in touch with her. In his final report on their two-day meeting the previous month, he had indicated that he suspected Theranos was exaggerating the capabilities of the Edison cartridges and readers and that he didn't think that they were as far along as they were indicating that they were technologically or scientifically. He suggested that Walgreens send in a consultant to oversee the implementation of the pilot program directly at Theranos. Yeah, he wanted somebody there in their building. Sonny and Elizabeth were like, yeah, no, they flat out refused. And I'm fairly certain that Kevin Hunter knew that there was no way that they were going to allow an outside consultant to oversee anything when he wrote up that suggestion. But he probably figured that he needed to, if nothing else, to cover his own ass if and when this all went south. Uh, Who are we kidding when all of this went south? Because he knew it was no good. A couple of days later, Kevin was on a conference call that included Elizabeth and Dr. J, and he took that opportunity to ask about the blood tests that were conducted on the executives at that last meeting in Illinois. Elizabeth, always at the ready to duck and dodge, said that the results can only be given to a physician. And Kevin was like, um, Dr. J isn't just a nickname. He's actually a doctor, even though he still makes that same corny joke that he used to be a basketball player. Elizabeth said that Sonny would get back to him in a few days in a private conversation. And yeah, no, it didn't happen. A month later, Theranos had still not given the blood test results to Dr. J. Then Theranos made a change that was going to affect the way that their lab testing procedures would be regulated by the government, and Kevin Hunter saw this move as nothing less than shady. Let me try to explain, and hopefully it's easy to follow along here. Again, I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible so I don't lose any of us, myself included. 
Okay, so at first Theranos said that their blood testing system was such that it qualified to be exempt from a 1988 federal law that laboratories were under the authority of. It's called the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. When blood tests were exempt, it usually meant that they were for basic testings that were approved to be used in-home by the FDA. But now, Walgreens was being told that the testing procedures that were going to be given in their stores were labeled laboratory developed. And the difference was significant to those who know better. Laboratory developed testing sort of falls in this undefined area between which department regulates it. As there is another regulating body called the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS for short, in addition to the FDA. With Theranos now calling their testing systems laboratory developed, it fell into this uncertain zone between the CMS and the FDA. The CMS is responsible for regulating clinical labs, while the FDA was responsible for regulating the equipment that the labs purchased. But neither one of them was specifically responsible for labs equipped with their own proprietary testing processes. Kevin Hunter got into quite a kerfuffle over this with Sonny and Elizabeth, with the two of them trying to tell him that every big laboratory always uses lab-developed tests. And it was kind of stupid of them on their part to try to BS Kevin with that nonsense, because unlike most people that Sonny and Elizabeth prefer to deal with, Kevin knew better. This was sort of his area of expertise. And we know how much the two of them, should we give them a mashup name like Sonny Beth? We know by now how much Sonny Beth don't like it when people have all this expertise and knowledge stuff that just makes things so complicated for them all the time. All this did was make Kevin Hunter want to ensure that the blood tests that Theranos ran on the Walgreens executives were on point. If he could just see that, yeah, okay, the Edison's work, it gave out good, valid results. It would just put his mind at ease about all this other weird stuff going on with these Theranos freaks. So while still on the conference call, which was a video call, Kevin said, you know, I want to set up a study in conjunction with the medical center on the Stanford campus. Let's take the blood samples from 50 people and run them through both Theranos testing devices and Stanford's devices and see how the results stack up against each other. When he made the suggestion, he could see that Elizabeth had a sudden shift in her demeanor and she quickly shot down his idea and moved on to other topics. When the conference call ended, Kevin, who was in charge of the deal on the Theranos end of things, decided to speak to the person who was in charge of the deal on the Walgreens end of things, a gentleman by the name of Renat Vandenhoff. Kevin expressed his misgivings about the whole deal, and he ticked off all the things that made him suspicious. Elizabeth refusing everything that Kevin had requested or suggested, refusing to let him see the Theranos lab, refusing to allow him to send someone to oversee things at Theranos, and now refusing to allow him to run a study to compare test results. Theranos had even had the audacity to draw the blood of their top executives 
and have yet to provide any of them with any results. Renat looked almost as distressed as Elizabeth does when somebody wants to use the bathroom at Theranos. He didn't even want to go there, explaining that if they didn't jump on this now, then CVS was going to. And CVS was Walgreens' biggest competitor. It was then and still is today. Even though Walgreens has more brick-and-mortar stores out there, CVS makes more money. At the time that all of this was happening with Aranos, CVS was making a third more in revenues than Walgreens. So Renat just didn't think that Kevin understood how important a deal like this was because he wasn't grasping the competitiveness of the business. And it was this fear of losing out to CVS that Elizabeth and Sonny seemed to be keenly aware of and masterfully played into it. It didn't matter what Elizabeth deflected or refused to do. She had the people at Walgreens that she needed in her corner in order to seal the deal, namely Dr. J and Wade Micklin. Next, Kevin said to Renat, Let me look inside one of the Edisons. Theranos had left some of them behind after the cringy Imagine Party for them to try out on their own. They left some random quote-unquote flu susceptibility test for them to use, but it was a test that Kevin had never really seen any other lab use, so there was no way that he would be able to do any side-by-side comparisons with it, something that he was sure that Elizabeth had done on purpose. And then when Kevin took a closer look at this flu susceptibility kit, the expiration date had already passed. Figures. Renat was adamant there was no way that he could allow Kevin to pry open one of the Edisons. They had agreed in writing and had been warned repeatedly to not mess with the Edison. Even if Kevin wanted to sneak a peek inside, the panels of the Edison were lined with tamper-evident tape. So there was no way around it, unless they wanted to risk getting the pants sued off of them by Theranos, which we know Elizabeth loved slapping people and companies with lawsuits left and right. Finally, Kevin was down to one last idea. One last resort to try to get through to Renat, to try to get him to listen to his concerns about Theranos. Kevin just was a guy that wasn't going to politely stand down every time Elizabeth or Sonny threw up some sort of deflection or roadblock to getting the answers that he wanted. Each time that Kevin was told no, he kept coming back for more. So Kevin said to Renat, look, there are two things that Theranos has been saying over and over again as evidence that their blood testing systems have been tested and validated thoroughly. One is that from 2003 through 2010, 10 of the top pharmaceutical companies in the world have validated their technology. And the other is that Dr. J has received a validation of the Edison from the medical school at Johns Hopkins University. Kevin told Renat that he was going to make a few phone calls to see if anybody was willing to admit that they actually validated the Edison. And while he was doing that, he wanted Renat to let him see the Johns Hopkins review. Kevin called around to the companies that Elizabeth had stated had tested and validated the Edison, but nobody would or could 
confirm that. And then Renat did hand over the Johns Hopkins report, albeit reluctantly, and when Kevin looked it over, he would have laughed out loud if this hadn't been such a serious matter to him. All the report said was that the technology seemed to be all right and that it was unique, but that was about it. The report also made it abundantly clear that Johns Hopkins ran no tests of their own. And at the bottom of the second page, it said, quote, the materials provided in no way signify an endorsement by Johns Hopkins Medicine to any product or service. So I guess Elizabeth and Sonny also counted on people not reading the fine print or looking at anything past page one. Maybe they're just not used to people being thorough or into reading. By then, Kevin could tell that he was getting to Renat, that Renat was starting to believe what he had been saying all along. He already knew that the person in charge of what Walgreens innovation team spends its money on, a gentleman by the name of Dan Doyle, he knew that he was on the fence about the Edison too. So now Kevin just had to convince Dr. J and Wade. Otherwise, if he couldn't change their minds, Kevin was certain that Walgreens would someday rue the day that they ever met Elizabeth Holmes. It was also around that same time that they were wheeling and dealing with Walgreens that Theranos was trying to make nice with Safeway, too, which is a grocery store chain here in the United States. I don't know if it's other places in the world. The CEO, Steve Bird, had been seen coming and going from Theranos as their headquarters was only about a 40-minute drive on the other side of the bay in Pleasanton, California. During the first part of his time with Safeway, Steve Bird was primarily focused on the grocery side of things, but eventually he turned his focus onto healthcare. And a large part of that had to do with the fact that there was a large amount of money that Safeway was paying out in terms of their own employees' healthcare coverage, and that had skyrocketed. So he became interested in, at first, Safeway employees' health and wellness, as well as his own. And then this spilled over into what he envisioned for what they would offer in their stores. Steve had invited Elizabeth to their headquarters so that she could introduce himself along with the other company VIPs to the Edison. They listened and they were very interested in what she had to say about wanting to develop a blood testing system without having to draw vials of blood, wanting to eliminate large needles while developing the technology to be compact convenient, more cost-effective, with results that would come back within an hour. She brought one of the Edisons with her to show off, and one of the executives there was Safeway Vice President Laurie Renda, who was particularly moved by what Elizabeth was saying because it just so happened that Laurie's husband had been in a long battle with cancer, and because he had been given so many venous blood draws, that they were actually causing his veins to collapse. And the idea of those same blood tests being run with only a finger prick sounded exactly like what cancer patients like him needed for this whole process to be that much easier on them who were already struggling with so much. And with that and Steve's interest in wellness, 
it seemed like the Edison was everything that Safeway needed to help its profit margins, which were hurting at the time. And just like that, Safeway and Theranos signed a deal which gave Theranos a $30 million loan while Safeway poured millions more into making over their stores to implement the new wellness centers featuring the Edison. Customers could come, shop for their groceries, and get their blood tested all in one trip. Steve Bird was also fairly obviously taken with Elizabeth, as most men in the story seem to be, except for the ones who like to do things like ask questions and read fine print, things like that. Steve even brought Elizabeth a single white orchid on one of his visits. And on another visit, he had gifted her a scale model of a private jet, telling her that she was on her way to having her own real one someday. Yeah, so more major cringe here. So how did each company feel about the Edison being in the other stores? Well, Steve over at Safeway knew about Theranos' deal with Walgreens, and Walgreens came to find out about the deal Theranos had made subsequent to theirs with Safeway. And while neither one of them were too happy with it, Elizabeth managed to smooth things over by letting them know that the Edison would be exclusively in Walgreens drugstores only and exclusively in Safeway grocery stores only. And both companies were like, eh, okay, fine. Better than missing out on the greatest invention since the Apple iPod. Or um, maybe the Microsoft Zune, perhaps? Meanwhile, back at Walgreens, Kevin got some bad news when he found out that Renat was leaving the company at the end of 2010, having accepted a job offer that he couldn't refuse. So there went one of the people that Kevin had almost convinced that the whole Theranos thing was a terrible idea. Renat was replaced with an executive named Trish Lipinski, and Kevin immediately went to her and voiced all of his concerns over the partnership with Theranos and said that he needed to kill the deal or else this was going to end up being a really bad look for Walgreens, a complete embarrassment. Kevin tried getting through to Dr. J, but it was useless. He was full-on Team Elizabeth. In fact, when he found out that the CEO of Safeway gave Elizabeth a flower and a model private jet, he started insisting that they needed to start showering Elizabeth with gifts too. Dr. J wasn't even wondering anymore about the results from the blood test that they had taken at that Imagine party months earlier. Those were results that they were promised and never got. Dr. J just seemed willing to let that go without questioning it. And with CFO Wade Micklin in his corner, who, by the way, had two DUI arrests in the past year that had made headlines in the Chicago area, there was little that Kevin could do. He didn't feel like either one of them were the most competent people to be handling a deal of this magnitude, but yet, there they were. The only thing that Kevin could do at this point was to just keep asking challenging questions during their weekly conference calls that they had with Elizabeth and Sonny. But soon, that was in jeopardy because sometime in early 2011, Sonny Beth had had enough of Kevin giving them the third degree every time they got on the calls 
So they told Trish Lipinski that they did not want Kevin involved in their conference calls or meetings any longer, citing his attempts to cause too much friction to a point that it was getting in the way of them being able to work together effectively. Trish had to tell Kevin that he could no longer join in on the conference calls or the meetings with Theranos and that they really had no choice but to comply with what Sonny and Elizabeth wanted or else they threatened to cut ties with Walgreens. Kevin tried to talk her into not bowing down to Queen Elizabeth and her village idiot. Walgreens was paying him and his company a lot of money to protect Walgreens' interests in this deal. So why would they want to do anything to prevent him from doing his job? In the end, Her Majesty got her way and Kevin's involvement in the deal became quite limited from that point forward. A few months later, Kevin Hunter went and visited some obscure warehouse on the outskirts of Deerfield, Illinois. Inside, there was a full-size mock-up of an actual Walgreens store with the Wellness Center built in, featuring exactly where the Edison would be placed. It was very unsettling for him to see that this was no longer just a concept on paper. This was about to get real, and actual people were going to start coming into Walgreens and have their blood taken and tested on a device that he fully believed did not work. In the beginning, I referenced Elizabeth Holmes living in Wonderland. And you know, there is a quote from the movie that is looked upon as quite endearing. A quote that was said by Alice, the original person who went down a rabbit hole. She said, well, sometimes I believe as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Even though Elizabeth never referenced Alice and nobody has ever really made the comparison, It isn't lost on me that perhaps Elizabeth chose to believe in the impossible too. But something got lost along the way when she decided to claim that she made the impossible happen, when in reality, it was never going to be possible at all. Okay, dreamers, we are going to end part three there. When we come back, we will get into the next phases of the Theranos deals with Walgreens and Safeway. And I think we're going to get into Theranos' alleged involvement with the United States military. Please don't forget to join the Facebook discussion group if you haven't already and share your feedback and your comments. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Make sure you listen past the end of this episode for that promo from the Murderific podcast. I think that's all for this week. We will be back soon with the fourth installment of the series, A Girl Boss and the Silicon Valley of Lies. I want to thank you again for listening and until next time, sweet dreams.
Hi, I'm Bernadette, the host for Murderific True Crime Podcast, coming to you from the state of Maine, USA. We are a bi-weekly podcast and discuss stories from Maine, New England, and all over the world. Our stories focus on domestic abuse, mass murder, familicides, cults, serial killers, kidnappings, and lesser-known cases. Murderific is easy to find on all podcast apps or go to Murderific.com. Give Murderific a try. Remember, murder and horrific equals murderific. Murderific.